We are in our second or third week of preaching through the second week of preaching through the service. Um, And this morning is a sermon about preaching. If someone were waiting outside the church to do some sort of man-on-the-street interviews and asked you what you had just been doing in there for the last hour, if there were a hundred people here on a normal normal Sunday, we'd probably get a hundred different answers. Now, if that person had shown up last week, I think the interviewer would be surprised at how similar the responses they received were, because last week I laid a biblical and theological foundation for worship. You know that thing we do every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock that begins officially at 11.05 when we gather here in the historic Capitol Theater. Here's what you need to know if you missed the sermon, and here is hopefully what our imaginary interviewer would have heard last week. Worship remembers, rehearses, and anticipates the story of God. Worship remembers, rehearses, and anticipates the story of God. We exalt God by remembering, rehearsing, and anticipating a story. Now, I want to be very clear. In fact, I must be very clear. This sermon series, last week, this week, the next couple of weeks, like this is not an exercise in theological clarity for clarity's sake. This is not an exercise in nuance for nuance's sake. No, all of this is immensely practical because whether you know it or not, some story gives meaning to your life. You're taking your cues from someone, somewhere, or something. We so desperately need to understand our lives as roles in God's unfolding story in the world. So with the right understanding of worship by remembering, rehearsing, and anticipating the story of God, we can more faithfully situate our lives within that story, the story of God, the true story. We remember and proclaim the gospel. We exalt Jesus together and learn each week to live his way. So how do we remember, rehearse, and anticipate the story of God in our services? That's the guiding question of the next few weeks, this one included. How do we remember, rehearse, and anticipate the story of God in our services? How do we do the theology that we preached last week? Well, one big thing we do every week that takes up the largest chunk of time in the service is preach. Yes, this morning I'm preaching about preaching, but this is not a sermon for preachers, really. This is a sermon for hearers, for listeners. This is a sermon for those who listen to preachers. What is the point of preaching in a worship service? What am I, the preacher, supposed to do? What are you, the hearer, supposed to do? Why do I work so hard on a sermon every week? Why is it so important that you be here with your whole body, your head and your heart and your hands to hear the word of the Lord? I answer that question in our main idea this morning. Here is our big idea that will guide our whole morning. In the worship service, we preach to exalt, inspire, and instruct. In the worship service, we preach to exalt, inspire, and instruct. 
As you know, we're taking a break from how we usually do things, just working word by word through the scriptures and sort of engaging biblically, thematically, topically, some things that our church needs to understand. And so I think one of the things that we need to understand in this season is why the gathering's important, but more than that, like why we do the things that we do that makes the gathering so important. So I'm jumping around the scriptures a little bit this morning. So before we get into these points to exalt, inspire, and instruct, I I do want to say a quick word about the preeminence of the word in a liturgy. Put simply, preaching is preeminent in the service because the word of God is preeminent in our lives. Preaching is preeminent in the service because the word of God is preeminent. We hold the scriptures to be the divinely inspired word of God. When we read these words, brothers and sisters, God speaks. When we read these words, God speaks. And if God speaks, then his words are better than our words. By nature of them being his, they are preeminent. Paul commands the church at Colossae to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. Listen to this brief instruction. It's not on the screen, but listen close to these words to the church at Colossae and the role the word of God plays in their community. He's saying to the church, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now notice he's saying to put these things on, that means you don't naturally have them, right? Put on love, put on forgiveness, put on grace, put on meekness. Put these things on. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Put on love, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Here we go in verse 16 of the third chapter. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let the word of, the, let the word of Christ, or let the message of Christ, dwell among us richly as we teach, as we admonish, as we sing, as we pray. Let the word of Christ dwell in all of it. Let it pervade the whole liturgy. Let the word shape the content of all you do in the service. Enough for now. I I think you'll see the preeminence of the word throughout the entirety of the sermon. So why do we preach? First, we preach to exalt Christ. The verb that is most commonly used for preaching, kuriso, occurs over 60 times in the New Testament. It really helps us understand the nature of the preaching act. Kuriso means to proclaim as a herald. In the ancient world, the herald was somebody of great importance. It must be a man of character and integrity. He was employed by the king to go out and to make official proclamations on behalf of the state. Preaching, then, is heralding. A preacher is a heralder. A preacher, using that New Testament verb used over 60 times for preaching, is a proclaimer. So what does the preacher herald? What does the preacher proclaim? The answer is the word of God. 
The word of God is the content of our proclamation. The news the preacher proclaims is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We proclaim this news and it exalts and magnifies the Lord. Consider Paul's testimony to the Corinthians. And I believe we have this on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look with me in verses 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Greeks, Paul says, want to be impressive with philosophy. They want big words and well-crafted rhetoric from good-looking, impressive, well-educated people. The Jews might not be as interested in Greek philosophy, but they want signs. They want signs of religious life. They want to see God move, in a sense. To be crass, you could say Greeks would be people of the head and Jews would be people of the heart, but we preach Jesus Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews and just pure silliness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, this message is the power and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. The message we preach, Paul tells the church of Corinth, will be rejected by all sorts of people. But those who do receive it, those who receive Jesus in the gospel, receive the power and wisdom of God. Week in and week out, we herald the news of Christ. We preach Christ and him crucified. Friends, it ain't a sermon until we get to Jesus. Spurgeon has this famous quote, if your sermon has nothing to do with Jesus, go home and never preach again until you find something worth preaching. That's a paraphrase. Proclaiming the message of the king glorifies the king. Psalm 96.3 speaks prophetically of the mission of the church. Declare, proclaim his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all peoples. When we preach, friends, we declare and exalt Jesus. In Colossians 1, Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Him we proclaim, Paul says, that we might present everyone mature in Christ. We preach Christ, don't miss this, we preach Christ for the maturation of the saints. We preach Christ, we exalt Jesus, we proclaim Jesus, we proclaim the gospel for the maturation of the saints. That means we don't just preach Jesus to convert someone, 
and then move on to a litany of life lessons that we rotate every couple years once they're converted. No, we preach Jesus for the edification of the saints. What began with the power and wisdom of God only grows with the power and wisdom of God. What God began, God must complete. What began with the power of God only progresses with the power of God. Him we proclaim week in and week out. When we preach the word of God, we proclaim the gospel for the glory of God. When we preach the word of God week in and week out, we are proclaiming the word of God for the people of God and the glory of God. How does this fit into our theology of worship? Worship remembers, rehearses, and anticipates the story of God. When we preach the word, we remember the gospel. Remembering also implies a sort of already knowing. And so for those of you who are new to the church, new to the faith, like as the word is being preached, the story of God is being taught. The gospel message is going forward in all of its biblical context. We remember the gospel by preaching it, by proclaiming it week in and week out. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Now the next two points flow from this first. When the preacher exalts Jesus in the text through preaching, the people of God are inspired and informed. When the preacher exalts Jesus in the text, when we proclaim Jesus, the people of God are inspired and informed. Both of these words are important. Our response to preaching is worship. We do not bifurcate our bodies in the service. Here's what I mean. We don't fill our hearts during music and fill our heads during the preaching. No, we're thinking and loving in both. Our heads and hearts are engaged and active the entirety of the service in an ideal world. There will be no beheadings here. Like our heads and our hearts remain a part of the whole thing. The exaltation of Jesus inspires us. When I preach the word of God to the people of God, I aim then for the whole person, for the, the head and the heart. When I first started preaching, I basically just thought I was explaining things. The first move of my preaching then was just learning how to interpret the word of God. Sit down, study for a long time, then get up on the platform and tell you what I learned. And that's still foundational to what I do. But in the last couple of years, as I've gotten a little bit older and preached for much longer, I've embraced a second move in the preaching. Yes, you learn how to interpret the word of God, but then you have to learn to preach to the people in front of you. Then you have to learn how to take that word and, and give it to the people in front of you. Friends, I must work really hard in that process to exegete the text, interpret the text, make sure that it's faithful to the story of the whole Bible, make sure it's theologically accurate, historically accurate, practically helpful, do all these sorts of things. But I'm not the only one that, that has some work involved in the sermon process. Like, I gotta come to the table, but, but brothers and sisters, you gotta come to the, the table. Like, you have to bring your head and heart, and I have to preach in a way that, that, that reaches the, the head and the heart. I was listening to Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, uh, talk about preaching in a panel discussion back in 2015. And one of the things I love about Tim Keller's ministry, there's, there's, there's many, but, but one is the way uh, his wife Kathy is just a part of, of everything that he does. And he told a story on this panel about his wife's input 
uh, in one of his, in, about his preaching. She said to him, the first part of your sermon is good. You know, you're, you're laying a foundation or you're explaining what's going on in the text and all these people are taking notes and finding helpful points and, and that's good, but, but it doesn't become a sermon until you get to Jesus. And she told him this, there's a point in your sermon, usually later on in it, when we just kind of put our pens down and behold the beauty of God. Friend, in every good sermon, I think there has to be a moment where you put your pen down. Every good sermon has a time to pick up your pen and a time to lay it down. There are moments where our hearts are so gripped by the beauty and power of God that we are moved to worship. I've shorthanded this response, maybe not helpfully, maybe helpfully, you can be the judge, as being inspired. The word inspires us because the word is alive. It does stuff in our hearts, stuff that I cannot do and that you cannot muster up on your own. Consider Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 and 13. Just listen, I'll read these two verses. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Brother, sister, when the word of God goes forth, there's no telling what it's gonna do. It'll pierce your soul, it'll stare into your heart. No one is safe for the living word of God is in this place. No creature is hidden from its sight. When the word goes forth, the Lord is present and all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When the word goes forth, there's no telling what it will do. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is preeminent because the word of God is alive. I spent a lot of last fall in my PhD studies studying Luther, and there's one quote that gets thrown around from him a lot, and it's, he's, he did say it, and it's true. And it's a, a quote where he's speaking to the, the power and the livingness of the, the word when asked about the success of the, the project that's breaking forth in Europe of Reformation. Luther responded, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. Then I went to sleep, went to the pub with my friend Philip of Amstorf. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince nor emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing, he says. The word of God did it all. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is alive. Most of you, I I understand and know, don't really understand or don't really remember what I say in sermons. Understand, that would be a nightmare. Should understand what I say in sermons or I'm not preaching right. But most of you don't really remember what I say in sermons. But you do leave with some sort of impression. Preaching is an art just as much as it's an interpretive science. Art matters in the Bible. The language of the prophet is poetry. Beauty and form matter. We preach every, every week, not just to be taught, though we are taught, but, but I preach every week that the people of God would be inspired. Not in a cheap way, 
Not in an Osteen-y way. Part of why that stuff is so popular, if we'll be charitable for just a moment, is people are starving for inspiration. They're starving for a story bigger than themselves to be a part of. But when we preach the word of God, we're not just inspired by empty promises and an impassioned speaker. No, we are inspired by the living word of God, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good preaching has notes of wonder. Good preaching has notes of wonder. The gospel is good, and we marvel in response to it. There's a time to pick up your pen in a good sermon, and there's a time to put your pen down and just marvel. Let's pick them up one more time. Exalting Jesus by preaching the word inspires the church and instructs the church. Paul's second letter to Timothy is helpful here. I want to look at what he's teaching him both in chapters 3 and 4. It's one ongoing passage. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and, and flip over to, uh, to that, that chapter. 2 Timothy 3 and 4. I'll summarize what we need to get us to where we're going. Paul tells his protege, there will be terrible times coming. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, not lovers of good. They'll be conceited. They'll be lovers of pleasure, not God. They will have a form of godliness but deny its power. That is a whole sermon waiting to be preached, a form of godliness that denies its power. There's going to be all sorts of people like that. Paul's telling Timothy. Here is his command to them. Avoid these people. In fact, he says, have nothing to do with them. So he's saying, sort of commands the negative. You're going to see people in these days who are filled with love of money. They are greedy. They are hateful. They are conceited. They are divisive. They are all these sorts of things. Ignore those people. Have nothing to do with them. Don't partner with them in, in the work of the gospel. Rather, do this, 2 Timothy 3.10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endure, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now, there's a point here to be made, just briefly, about Paul and Timothy's relationship. He's saying to Timothy, you have seen my love. You have seen my steadfastness. You have seen me in good days and bad days. And Paul is using his life as a sort of template by which Timothy can understand what a godly life looks like. And that always sort of makes me question, like, if my life is, is a sort of Pauline life in this, in this metaphor, then if there's a Timothy looking up to my life. Are they seeing a good example of a life of godliness or are they seeing a, a bad example of a life of godliness? Like, can I say what Paul is saying? Can I say that you saw me in the good days, the bad days, the hard days, the persecution at here and here and here, and you saw me never lose course. You saw me keep my eyes on the prize. You saw me keep my eyes on Jesus. You saw me overcome these things by grace. You saw me respond to hate with love. You saw me respond to discouragement with courage. You saw me respond to all these things well. Like, can we say that? It's just a question I ponder. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned 
and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Timothy, people are going to go their own way, but don't follow them. You have a better way, Paul says. You've seen my life. You've seen all the Lord has brought me through. You have an embodied example of the way of Jesus in me. What does it look like to follow Jesus? It looks like what Paul did in Timothy's life. We all need a Paul in our lives who we can point to and say, that's what faithfulness looks like. And we all must strive to be a Paul that others can look to and say, that's what faithfulness looks like. The word is embodied in the people of God. Here's what you must do, Timothy. Don't be like those folks. Here's what you must do. If you're going to finish your race, if you're going to be faithful, if you're going to grow, if you're going to mature, you will keep going in what you've already learned. We know that his mom and his grandma or believers continue in the sacred writings you've been exposed to since your childhood. Stay in the word that your grandma shared with you. Stay in the word that your mom shared with you you. They're able to make you wise. Isn't it astounding that the living word of God that we hear when we're little kids is enough to keep us going when we're old and on our deathbed? It's that same word that grows through us throughout our lives. Paul is telling Timothy, don't leave it. Continue in what you've heard from your grandma, from your mom, and from me. Why should he keep going? Why should he continue in this word? Why? He answers that question in verse 16. Because all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are breathed out by God, and they will teach you everything you need to live a righteous life. When we preach the Bible, we are inspiring the people of God with the proclamation of the gospel. And when we preach the Bible, we are instructing the people of God to learn to live in light of the gospel. We are inspiring the people of God with the beauty of the gospel and we are taking the the concrete, tangible instructions from the word of God and applying them to our lives. The scriptures which are living instruct us in the way of the Lord. As we preach them, we are inspired by an encounter with the living God and we are instructed by the living God himself. As we preach the Bible, week in and week out, brothers and sisters, what's going on? We are being inspired by an encounter with the living God, and we are being instructed on how to live by the living God. Timothy, stay with the word your mama passed down to you, the word her mom passed down to her, the word of the prophets 
and the apostles. In light of that reality, that the word is sufficient for training in godliness, here is the charge from Paul to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The word of God is alive. The word of God is sufficient. The word of God is alive and sufficient. It's breathed out by God. Therefore, I charge you. Listen to how Paul intensifies this charge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. After a charge like that, you you better listen to what's about to be said. Preach the word in season and out of season. When the church is full, when the church is empty, when you're popular, when you're unpopular, when your teaching is spreading through the internet 2,000 some years later, when your teaching is going to the views of three people and it's your mom, your wife, and you, keep preaching in season and out of season. Some will wander off, essentially Paul tells Timothy. Some will have itching ears. They'll want to hear from somebody who gives them exactly what they want to hear. And they'll go and get it. And someone will be more than happy to profit off giving it to them. Some will want something other than the word of God. But you must never give them anything other than the word of God. Brothers and sisters, we will not satisfy itching ears behind this pulpit. We hear and receive the apostolic call to preach the word, the word that is able to inspire us and instruct us for a life of godliness. We remember the story of God when we preach. As I alluded to a moment ago, a moment ago preach, remembering something implies knowing it. So we teach the story of Jesus when we preach. We teach from the word of God when we preach. We proclaim the gospel and explore its 10,000 implications for all of life across the whole of scripture. We come on Sunday mornings to be inspired and instructed for a life of godliness. Worship team, come on up. We're just about finished. The word of God is alive. The word of God is able The word of God is sufficient. We proclaim Jesus Christ, a stumbling block to the Greeks and the Jews, but the power of God for salvation to those who believe. When we exalt Jesus in the preached word, the people of God are both inspired and instructed. And I'm always uh, reminded of, of a quote by Antoine uh, De Saint Exupery. I don't know his name. I'm not sure who he is. He's probably someone I should know, but not come across him much. He has a quote that I've used in sermons before. If you want to build a ship, 
Don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. I'm going to read that one more time. If you want to build a ship, don't just drum up people to collect wood and assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. This idea is that the endless immensity of the sea will inspire the people to do the little and menial things that are required to build a ship to go and experience the beauty and wonder and immensity of the sea. And I kind of view preaching in a similar way. Yeah, there will be life lessons that we get. In fact, this summer, we're going to take some time to think about relationships together, how to have healthy relationships. I think coming out of um, COVID, that there's just, there's a lot of truth from the word of God we need to apply to our horizontal relationships, how our vertical relationship with God impacts our relationships with others. And there are uh, all sorts of ways we can improve at having healthy relationships, whether it's our marriages or friendships or the folks in the church. And I think we need help and instruction for that. So there will be weeks and sermons where there's a lot of practical stuff. But even on those weeks, when we're preaching through the Bible, when we're doing a week like this, where we're taking a moment to say, let's contextualize ministry, let's contextualize what we're doing, that there should be a sense in which the pre- Preaching so exalts and honors God that we are together inspired by the greatness of God and that vision of God's greatness, which goes forth through the preaching of his word, that that kindles in us a longing to see and savor and experience the glory of God so that that desire to see God glorified motivates us through everything else in life. That I so long to see the glory of God that I'm willing to, 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 to repent of these things. I'm willing to stop doing these things because I want to see God more clearly. I want to experience his presence more acutely. The greatness of God then compels me to keep going when I don't want to. The greatness and glory and majesty of God, they compel us to keep going through the monotony of tough days. They compel us to keep going in season and out of season. They compel us to keep going if we have people going with us or not, but the glory and greatness of God is what we're all about. And there's a sense in which I think preaching does that for the church. That we preach and proclaim the glory of God and it kindles in us a longing. To see this God, to know this God, and to serve this God. We'll learn together how to collect wood and build the ship. But preaching, I think, gives us a collective North Star that we long for, that we're pointed towards, and that together we approach. We preach to exalt Jesus. We preach to inspire the saints, to give them a glimpse of the glory and power and majesty of our God who lives and reigns, and to instruct the saints on how to live a life of godliness. That's why we preach for 35 to 40 45, I'm just kidding. So 35 to 40 minutes every week to proclaim the word of God, the living word of God, and draw from it both inspiration and instruction to remember 
the story of God. Let's pray. Father, every week of this series is foundational, or is building off the next, rather. Last week together, we considered an overall vision of everything that happens on a Sunday morning, fitting into this scheme of remembering, rehearsing, and anticipating the story. And this morning, Lord, we're asking on this Memorial Day weekend, like, why do we preach? Why does someone stand behind a pulpit and proclaim something for the bulk of our time, or the plurality of our time, at least, on a Sunday morning? And I pray that, Lord, as long as this pulpit is occupied, that it will be by those who proclaim Jesus Christ. Him we proclaim. Lord, I pray that you would inspire us as we proclaim your gospel. Give us the desire to live a holy life. And Lord, I pray that as we preach, we would remember that this stuff is not just idealistic, it's not just ethereal, but it's real, it's practical, it's embodied. That there's real instructions for real people who want to live a life of real godliness. And, and that's us, God. Help us submit to your word and learn how to live from it. Lord, teach us to long for the endless immensity of the sea of your glory. As the word goes forth from this pulpit every week until you see fit for that not to be the case. May we preach Jesus Christ and may the people of God be inspired and encouraged to play their role in the story of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.